Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of day it might be that you're tuning into this podcast. Today, I am happy to have with me uh, fellow RCM practitioner and businesswoman, Nancy Reagan. Nancy's been in the industry several years. We've known each other for quite some time. Uh, she was a student of John Mowbray's and uh, she runs a company called, I believe it is RCM Online. Is that correct, Nancy? It's RCMTrainingOnline.com. I knew I left one thing out. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> All right. And she also uh, is very famous for her uh, little video clips on, on LinkedIn. Uh, those are, are, are quite uh, interesting and entertaining and very on point and focused in terms of RCM and reliability. So uh, I'm happy to have uh, Nancy as a guest today. So how are you doing, Nancy? Thank you, Doug. I'm doing great. And this September, I'm going to be celebrating my silver anniversary with reliability scented maintenance. I'm totally dating myself, but it's been 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> I am uh, right around the same time frame. I would say it was late 1997, I think, when I, I took uh, my first RCM training in 1999 when I struck out on my own. So, uh, I know we've been in an industry a similar uh, amount of years. You've also written a book. What's the name of your book, by the way, Nancy? Yes, it's called The RCM Solution. Very good. And I have read it. It's a great, uh, great RCM read. There are several of them out there, including uh, John's book, my book. I like to plug that now and then. Uh, so, uh, and of course, Max Smith's books, I've, uh, I've, I've read them all and uh, you pick up bits and pieces from, from each. Uh, there've been several really big names out there in the RCM world. And uh, if you're interested in becoming good at it, I would recommend that you read as many of those as you can get your hands on, but that's not what we're here for today. We're here to talk to Nancy about uh, leadership and uh, her experience. So if you could, Nancy, tell our listeners, uh, your background, where you went to school, some of the companies you've worked with and the roles that you've worked in. Well, when I was a little girl, I wanted to be an Egyptologist and then I wanted to be a doctor, but the divine has a way of stepping in. And when I was in high school in homeroom, I remember it was room 201, this shiny pamphlet landed on my desk uh, from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. And on the cover, there was a cockpit and it was nighttime and it was all lit up and you could see the stars. And there was something about that. And so I switched course. And to be honest with you, I, I studied aerospace engineering solely because the courses sounded cool. I had no idea what I was getting myself into because uh, it wasn't an easy curriculum. But uh, it was just part of my path. When I when I graduated, I uh, before I graduated, the Naval Air Systems Command came and recruited at uh, our college for an internship. And I applied and I interviewed and I got the job. And if any of you out there have ever been an intern before, you may know you don't get you don't always get the most interesting work. And it can be quite boring at times. And I'm not like that. I'm a go-getter. I have to be busy or I, I, it bothers me. So I was bringing my checkbook to work. I was doing anything to keep busy. And then one day, um, my supervisor called me into his office and he said, 
Um, Nancy, we've been tasked from above to do reliability-scented maintenance. And I wrote down in my notebook, you know, reliability-scented, what did he say? I think he said maintenance. And I wrote that down. And he said, I need you to go figure out what that is and what we have to do to implement it. Now, I'm not sure if he was totally counting on me or if he was just passing it off to an intern because maybe he didn't really care. But anyway, I took it and I ran with it. And who knew that that 10-minute meeting on an otherwise ordinary day in August 1997 would set the trajectory of my life? So I learned LCM as a civilian Navy employee. And then I started my own business in 2001 and because I wanted to apply LCM more broadly to different kinds of equipment. And that's been my story ever since. So it's been me and LCM for 25 years. Very good. Uh so tell me, what do you think, uh, is it that story? Do you think you were first recognized as a leader? Or is there another event that, where you were working a project or something where somebody said, uh, here's a person that certainly has some leadership skills? You know, that's okay. That's a really interesting question. So to answer that, I would have to go back to when I was, when I was 15 and a half years old, my cousin I, I don't know if I should admit this or not, but I'm going to. He faked my work, my working papers, because you had to be 16 in Massachusetts to work, but I wanted desperately to work. <laughs> so when I was 15 and a half, he faked my working papers and I started working at McDonald's. That was a 15 and a half. And when I turned 17, they made me a swing manager. So I I, I think it's just always inherently been in me to just do a lot. And um I, I think just inherently, I have those types of qualities. Um, but so I had to wait until I was 18 legally to be able to open and close the store. So that was another milestone for me. When I was 18, I got to open the store. Very cool. Um, I know you're probably not aware of this. All three of my children were McDonald's employees when they were in high school. Um, oh. A local local uh, McDonald's and uh, my oldest daughter started there and the manager of, of that store uh, really thought the same of her as probably as your manager thought of you. And uh, so when the siblings came along, my kids are four years apart. He made sure he got each one of them and uh, they all have great uh, memories of working there and, and uh, enjoyed uh, what they learned in terms of responsibility and, and discipline and detail uh, that goes along with working at one of their stores. So that, uh, that's very interesting that you have that background. Um, I know, think I know the answer to the next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, in your career, has there been a mentor or leader that uh, you looked up to that uh, certainly influenced your career path? Yeah, de it's definitely, you know, the answer. It's John Mowbray. And there's there's one other person. But first, I'll talk about John Mowbray. Um, you know, to me, John, I learned so much about reliability-scented maintenance from him. But John also taught me a lot about life and about business. And he was the one who put the bug in my ear about starting my own business. And um, I'm grateful to him for that because it opened up so many other opportunities. But if you were to ask me what the best thing that John ever taught me, it's this. He taught me that time is our most valuable asset. Um, you can always make more money, but you can never make more time. And the way he taught me this is 
when I when I went, I, I went to his and his wife's home, um, Edith, in Asheville, North Carolina, to have some one-on-one mentoring. And when we sat down together, um, the first thing that he said, he looked at me and he said, I want you to look around my house and tell me what's missing. But I didn't have to look around because I had already noticed and I thought it was really odd. There wasn't one television in his house. And he told me he didn't have a TV because he thought that it was a colossal waste of time and he wasn't sure he would have the discipline to never turn it on. And so that taught me huge. And I don't know about you, Doug, but the older I get, the faster time goes by and the more valuable I find my time now because I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I mean, I'm just going to admit it. I'm, I'm going to be 54 this year and I, there's still a lot I want to do. And so time is, time is, time is running out. And so that, that's the best thing he taught me. Now, the other mentor is my, my mentor, um, Cam Fraser, who is also not, a, um, not alive anymore, but he taught me to never make decisions out of fear. And I, I remember that. I remember that every week because every week I'm faced with something and I don't know, my default is, oh my gosh, if I do that, this could happen. And then I have to kind of check myself. Am, am I doing it out of some, am I saying no out of some crazy fear or, or, you know, is it something I can really work through? So that's another one time and don't make decisions out of fear. Those were two great ones. Uh, I can tell you the time thing was a, a huge influence in, in my decision to do this semi-retirement thing. I'd like to really say that I'm fully retired, but I do enjoy going out and helping people, Reno. Um, but it, it got to the point where, you know, if I wanted to work three or four weeks a month, I could. And uh, if I wanted to bring more people on and, and, and have a bunch of people working for me, I could do that too. But all that stuff was taking up time. Um, I then had... Uh, one of those uh, health alarms come last fall and uh, that really cemented the decision to say, okay, enough's enough. Um, my time is certainly limited. Uh, everyone's time is. And so I've got uh, eight grandkids and uh, just enjoying life uh, the way it is right now. Uh, and the fear thing that is really uh that's one I can tell you that uh, when I get to a point where one of those things you say, okay, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I'm really a, a root cause type person. That way I'll actually draw things out. What's the worst that could happen? Yes. Right? And if, if that happens, then what do you do? Right. And it really comes down to when you do that, you find out you're really worrying a, a lot about nothing. Right. Um, so it, especially when you do own your own business, because there are those times you have those ups and you have those downs. And sometimes in those downs, you're going, okay, what am I going to do next? Right. How much more can I spend on advertising? Right. Before the next wave of good comes along. And right. So it it yeah. really comes into saying, okay, what's the smart thing to do? Right. What's free. And that's been the wonder of the internet, really. Uh, the things like you're doing on LinkedIn, it's not costing you a dime and it gets you attention. So it's a fantastic uh, way of uh, advertising yourself and keeping your name out there and, and keeping people thinking about you. So I, yeah. I commend you for that. Um, as a leader, what are your thoughts about how to change a reactive culture into a proactive culture at a plant site or a company? You know, I've been thinking about this a lot and I, 
I've got a lot of videos in mind to, to make about this. You know, we hear about reliability culture a lot and still, you know, the people I talk to every week, they're, they're still in firefighting mode, you know, running from fire to fire. And I personally, I think I've narrowed it down to two things. I think that there is a technical part of this, but there's also a human part. So from the technical part, um, it's, there are still a lot of organizations that, that within an organization, there are a lot of people who still really need to understand the basics of maintenance and reliability. For example, you know, what drives a condition-based maintenance task? You know, it's the P2F interval. It's, it, what matters is how quickly something fails once a potential failure condition is detectable, you know, not, not a useful life, for example. So there are a lot of um, the basics that I think that people at every level need to understand, even from a management perspective, just if we, you know, if we just speak about reliability-centered maintenance specifically, for example, you know, even management needs to understand those basics because if they want to implement RCM, they have to understand the basics in order to be able to judge what someone is proposing. So some people need to understand reliability details uh, more deeply than others, but everyone needs to understand them at at least a basic level. So that's number one. But the other, the other part is the human part, where I think as human beings, it's just normal for us to be in our own head and be thinking about our own responsibilities and how things that happen affect us. And I think that if we get out of our own heads and try and get into the minds of other people and try and understand them, so maybe empathy is the word, um, and talk to them in their language, you know, just so, for example, reliability-centered maintenance, or it could be any reliability improvement effort. Let's say if you're listening out there and you're a champion of a new project, but you need to get buy-in for it. Well, for me, I love talking about the details of RCM, but, um, you know, upper management, they don't want to know about the details of RCM. They want to know what RCM can do for them. So for managers, we have to talk to them in dollars. You know, for someone, maybe an operator, we need to talk to them in terms of their machine being up when they need it. And to a maintainer, we have to be able to talk to a maintainer like, hey, this could give you the time so that you can do the maintenance you need to do on your equipment when you want to do it and not running from fire to fire. So I, I think we have to be more empathetic and more understanding with people. I think those two things would go a long way in improving reliability cultures out there. Michelle, I like both of those. Um, so thinking about uh, hiring or promoting leaders, and, and I'm not sure whether you have other people on with your company or not, uh, what are the top two or three traits that you look for in leaders and why are those traits important? I mean, that could even apply to selecting facilitators, right? Companies. Uh, yeah, gosh. I mean, this question applies to almost everyone, but especially leaders. Okay. So the first thing I would have to say, uh, okay, three things. I look for, I, I, I look for someone who's kind in general, who's kind. 
Um, because I don't think that mean, I, mean people in the workplace, it's really bad energy. So that's a general one. I, I think people need to be kind. But number two, what I look for is someone who takes responsibility. For me, I don't expect anyone to be perfect. And I know, because I make mistakes every day, I know everyone is going to make a mistake along the way. And that's how we learn. And that's how we grow. So if someone makes a mistake, number one is take responsibility for it. Don't, don't try and blame someone else for it. Yeah. Okay. I messed up. How can we fix it and move on? Um, but the other one kind of, the third one ties into what we were just talking about um, with being uh, kind and, and empathetic. There was there was a guy in my husband's office. My husband is a surgeon. And, and there was a guy who came um, twice a month to pick up the medical waste. And this one day I was chatting with him. His name was Sandy. And I was chatting with him while he was, you know, picking up the, the weight, while he was packaging everything up. And I looked at his nails and his nails, each nail had a different color nail polish. And so I could have gone one of two ways. Like in my mind, I could have judged him for any number of reasons because it's, it's not mainstream and it could be considered odd, but I didn't. What I, I looked at him and I said, Sandy, I love your nails. They're really colorful. And he looked at me and he said, do you want the story? And I said, yeah. And he said, I have two girls, a 12-year-old and a nine-year-old. And um, two, two weeks ago, the nine-year-old had a horrible allergic reaction, and she died on the way of me driving her to the ER. She died next to me in my truck. Wow. Wow. And he said, every week, my nine-year-old and my 12-year-old did each other's nails. And my 12-year-old came to me crying this week saying, who am I going to do nails with now? So he said, you're going to do it with me. And he let her paint her nails. So you see, there's, there's almost always, I mean, we're all humans. There's almost always something else to the story. And um, I think it's really important in our own minds not to judge and to be kind and to, you know, just be thinking, even if someone's in a bad mood in your office, you know, maybe it is, a lot of times we say, well, that person was rude to me, you know, maybe what did I do to bother them today? And it probably has nothing to do with us, but something to do with them. So anyway, that taught me a huge lesson. And I'm so grateful that in the moment, I didn't stick my foot in my mouth. And I, and I just, you know, I just asked and I listened and I, and I learned a lot. So I think that's really important for a leader. Very good. Um, and what a great story. That was, uh, it's, it's very touching. It's, and it's one of those things that, you know, I was expecting that, uh, you know, I have these, all these grandkids and it's not uncommon for them to, to be doing the nail painting thing and say, Hey, <laughs> yes. you know, can I do yours? <laughs> and why not let them, right? Yeah, I mean, let exactly. them paint your nails. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Cause you know what? They will remember that Sandy. I can just speak for my own father. My, the little things that my father did with me, um, those are the things that I remember. So if you let them paint your nails, you will be a hero in their minds forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So nearly every leader that I've ever met and, and talked with, and, and I, I admit with this question, I'm very selfish about this uh, uh, because I'm 
uh, a voracious reader. I read, read all the time. Uh, so I like to ask people, was there a book or course that you took that, uh, that inspired you along the way that you could recommend to our leaders? And, uh, and what was your takeaway from that book? Okay, so for me, I'm with you. I love to read. And I've been studying the power of positive thinking for, I don't know, like 25 or 30 years. It's really fascinating to me. And a, um, a book that I have read just recently that has quite literally changed my life is called Feeling is the Secret by Neville Goddard. It's, it's an old book. He, he wrote it in the 50s, but I've been doing this now for about five nights and my life is, my life is different because of it. So in this book, and, and it's really interesting for people in maintenance and reliability because it's about cause and effect, where he says the subconscious mind is the cause and the conscious mind is the effect. So the, the, the theory, or I don't believe it's a theory, I, I do believe it's true. But anyway, what he's saying essentially is that what you think about gets seeped into your subconscious and manifests in your outside life. So Whatever's going on in your outside life, it's because of what you're thinking. And but this is the part, and I've always known that, but it's like, how do you put that together? I mean, we have to live in this real world. I mean, I can't be thinking in a fantasy world all day and still live in this world. But something that he said really made sense. It's simple and it works. It's so powerful, it borders on scary to me. Where he says that your subconscious is most impressionable just before you fall asleep. So if you fall asleep thinking about what it is you want to achieve, and it can be at the micro or the macro level, so it can just be maybe a project you're stalled on, or it can be what you want to be five years from now, but you think about it as if you have already achieved it. But the key is this, you have to feel, you have to force yourself to feel how you would feel if you actually achieved it. And it's almost like a state, it's, euphoria is much too strong a word, but it's almost like that because you get excited feeling, hey, I finally did it. So I did this with something that I had been procrastinating on the first night that I, first time I, I, I read this, I went to bed and I thought about it, something I've been procrastinating about. I had all kinds of fears and all of this stuff around it. And I, I, I used the technique and I woke up with this, with this strong desire to do what it was I was procrastinating on. It was all I wanted to do that day. I spent the four hours of my first four hours of my day on it. And I had to force myself to stop to, to go on to something else that was more mundane to me. So it would be that it's just try it. It is so powerful. It's insane. That's a, a, a great tip, uh, and I'd like to tell people, because we all do this, I mean, that, that subconscious, you know, as you lay there in bed, the things that you think about, that one of the most important things about having a good relationship with your spouse or your loved one, whoever it is, is to have that person that you can bounce those things off of, right? Uh, those thoughts that come into your mind, and there are times that, you know, especially uh, in jobs like we have, when you're on the road, you're in a hotel room and you're sitting there laying in bed and like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do about this, right? How do you turn that to a positive? 
when you don't have that person to turn to and say, hey, I'm thinking about this and it's keeping me awake, uh, how do I deal with it? Uh, one of the other things you, you talked about earlier on that I meant to comment on is you, you tell your people that you make mistakes every day. Uh, that's an important piece as well, uh, especially with instructing and mentoring RCM facilitators, right? I'll have some of them and I tell them all, look, when you get done and you go on and you've achieved your certification, right? Please don't be afraid to share with me what you're doing, especially if you're having a problem. If you have a question, if you have one of those failure modes that you're thinking, do I have this right? Or am I one or two levels too high with this? Right. I tell them, I still make mistakes with this. Right. And teams that I've worked with, when companies say, you come in and do it, we don't want to train people. You come do it for us. They'll, look at me with this confused look when I come in the following morning and say, Hey, I was laying in bed thinking about this last night. We got this one failure mode wrong. <laughs> right? And they're like, you really think about this in bed at night? <laughs> right? And I go, well, when you realize that you've made a mistake, it's an important thing to, to admit that, Hey, this is, we're at the wrong level here. We're, we're totally out in the weeds. We need to come back and take a relook. Look at that a second time. Right. Um, and you know, I, I wonder, I've been wondering lately if that's where the saying don't go to bed angry comes from. Yeah. If if embedded in that is if you go to bed angry with your spouse or about any issue and that's how you fall asleep, you're now programming your next day. You know, so I'm wondering if that's where it comes from. It could very well be. So. Nancy, at this point in your career, what would you say is your greatest success? Wow, my greatest success. Okay. So I think that my greatest success so far was going on a quest to figure out how to overcome fear. Because I think that, I mean, I just, I know that from a lot of people that I've spoken to, fear holds a lot of people back. And so I have another mentor. Her name is Christina Thomas Fraser. And here's what she taught me about fear. That it's, it's so in our faces. And, and until someone actually says, look, it, this is what's going on, it, it, it can really, it can hold you back from achieving your own goals. So she taught me that there are two kinds of fear. Well, well, first of all, she taught me that all fear is real, but there are two kinds of fear. There's valid fear and there's invalid fear. So the valid fear, of course, is um, oh, a long time ago. One time I got lost in Manhattan. I was alone and I was walking. I got lost and I went down this seedy side street in Manhattan and there were these there were these guys, you know, further down and it was really scary. And th that was a valid fear because, I mean, something bad could have happened. So that was a valid fear that I, that I was afraid. But there's a lot of invalid fear out there. For example, oh, I don't want to make that video. Um, people think I'm a moron. Well, if I ask that question, they'll really think I'm stupid. Well, I don't want to suggest we do, we go in this direction because um, what if it's all wrong and then I get all blamed? So fears like that, when we get, when we start to get like hot and we start to sweat and it stops us from doing what we know we want to do, 
that's a clue that it's an invalid fear. And do you want me to give you a tip on the tip I learned on how to manage that, Doug? But some of you listeners might think I'm a nut and you might even Absolutely. think I'm a nut. Yeah. Okay. So we know from thermodynamics that energy can neither be created or destroyed. It can only be transferred from one form to another. So when you hear people say like, just forget about that fear, just push it aside and work through it. That's never going to work because it's energy. And we know it's energy because we get hot and we get scared and it stops us from doing what we want to do. So we know that it's energy and you cannot destroy it. You cannot eliminate fear, but you can transform it. And I've used this technique. It, it so works. I name the energy. So I suggest if you're listening, if you think I'm a nut, just try it. And then you can come back and tell me if I'm right or wrong. Name it and give it a job on your behalf. So turn it into your servant. For example, maybe you're going to a venue where the parking is going to be really, um, really tough. Or you, you want the seat next to you on an airplane to be empty, for example. Give it a job and let it work for you on your behalf. And when it starts to creep back in and it starts to nag at you, send it back to do that job. Two things happen. Number one, it is a faithful servant. It does the job you ask it to do. And number two, you get it off your back. So it's it's an amazing technique that I've learned. And that also has changed my life. But it's a, it's a daily battle with these fears. You have to keep giving them the job because they're never going away. You have to just constantly manage it. It's fantastic. I somehow knew that this was going to be a very interesting and insightful <laughs> uh, discussion today, Nancy. I want to thank you for, for taking part. Uh, before we go, though, I want to make sure that uh, I get our listeners uh give you the opportunity to say, all right, if they'd like to contact with you, what's the best way to do that? Okay. Yeah. If, if they're interested in hearing more things like about how to manage fear and the prison of perfection, they can go to nancyregan.com and that's um, R-E-G-A-N, nancyregan.com. And for um, reliability scented maintenance, they can go to rcmtrainingonline.com. Very good. Well, Nancy, it's been fantastic talking to you today. Thank you so much, Doug. Thank you for the opportunity. You're welcome. Good luck with all your future endeavors and uh, stay in contact. I will do, Doug. Thank you. Good luck to you, too. All right. This is Doug Plucknett signing off for the Leadership Connection. Have a great day. Bye.